This is a People First Radio podcast. Recently on the show, we've been having some conversations around death and dying. Nipissing University professor Susan Srigley shared her experience as a death educator. She said she finds young people coming to her classes have been particularly impacted by a taboo around discussing death. She said even students in nursing, criminal justice, and other fields that are likely to have to deal with death professionally aren't necessarily having this subject addressed. Swigley said that even just talking about death can reduce anxieties around it and make it easier to deal with the trauma that tends to accompany someone dying. We also heard from Crystal Choop who told us her story learning about traditional plant medicines from her grandfather while he was going through chemotherapy and how that experience led her towards death doula work. If you missed either of those conversations, you can find them on our People First Radio podcast feed. Just recently, the BC Humanist Association put out a free end-of-life guide for humanists and non-religious people. The guide's two authors, Ian Bushfield and Sophie Burke, join me to share more. For folks who aren't familiar, can you just give me a brief background on what is humanism? Yeah, I mean, the easiest way that I like to explain it is humanism is essentially atheism with a heart or the idea you can be good without God. So there's, you know, lots of philosophers involved and like tomes and books and books you can read about it. But it's really the idea about focusing on the one life we have, about bringing an, a worldview that's based on compassion and reason and evidence and trying to make the world a better place. Absolutely. Absolutely. And just to add on to what Ian said as well is really about interpreting the world through our senses and and knowing that science is a very powerful tool. And the reason that we exist is a a beautiful reason. It's a mysterious reason, but uh, that is good enough to know that it's through a complex and wonderful lineage of the world that we are here. Yeah, it's a term not a lot of people have necessarily heard of, but I think it's one a lot, especially in British Columbia, where the majority are non-religious, can probably see themselves in, even if they don't positively identify with. So coming from there, why a humanist guide for end of life specifically? Well, we really wanted to share uh, our beliefs that end of life for atheists and for agnostics can be meaningful, can be connected, can be uh, really beautiful and an important part of rituals, traditions. And just because you might not be living with a traditional ceremony or a traditional church every week of your life, and that may not feel uh, like a a part of you, you can still have a, a really great end of life that is connected and bring people together without it having to be about a god or gods. And I'm curious about that idea of ceremony when it comes to end of life from a non-religious perspective. In the guide, it it talks about ritual and ceremony. So what, what can that look like at the end of life for someone who's maybe not a regular practicing religious person? One of the great things about humanism is it's so personalized and individualistic. So the guide is really descriptive more than prescriptive. We don't say this is what a humanist memorial looks like. It's more helping people decide what is important to them and how can they work that into the ceremonies and rituals they want to have. Because these are very human aspects, right? The idea that we want to 
gather together to recognize the importance of these passages uh, is something natural to all of us. And it doesn't have to invoke the supernatural. It can just invoke community, love, compassion. Maybe it involves a gathering. Maybe it involves uh, a cremation. Maybe it doesn't, right? There are a million different ways you can approach this. And it notes in the guide that the Canadian military now has its first humanist chaplain. I'm wondering, maybe Sophie, if you can tell me how how a humanist chaplain might be different from what people might picture when they hear that word chaplain. Mm. Well, this is really exciting that a humanist chaplain was introduced in Canada. We were a little bit further behind some other countries, but nonetheless, we're excited uh, to see it. What a humanist chaplain uh, means on the outside as someone who is not involved in the military but is excited about this change means that it really truly validates someone's spiritual beliefs or lack of spiritual beliefs and says these are fair as well and we can choose to support people no matter what their spiritual beliefs are. Just because you don't necessarily believe in a god or a gods doesn't mean that you you know, don't need emotional support or you don't need uh, someone to go to to talk about your challenges. You are valid and you uh, are supported by your community, no matter what your beliefs are, and providing resources for someone that is appropriate to their spirituality. And that is so important to really validate what someone's perspective is, as opposed to just forcing them into one box where the resources are. So truly creating resources that meet people's needs. Yeah, this was an initiative in part, I think, from Humanist Canada, our, you know, na- our friends at the national level where they managed to announce this just last year, May 2022, uh, that Captain Mary Claire Kadidge uh, is going to be the first ever humanist chaplain. She was formerly a Catholic uh, chaplain, I guess, and sort of lost her faith in that or found humanism, but still wanted to keep doing those important roles that Sophie spoke to. Uh, You know, we have for the BC Humanist Association, we've had a chaplain at Kwantlen University, uh, Marty Shoemaker, for a number of years. And, you know, we get approached by people at other universities, and it's a very tough field to get into because it is so dominated by this conception that you have to have a supernatural belief to mm-hmm. still need some support in that, right? To have some support in understanding your worldview that isn't necessarily like a therapist or isn't a, you know, medical practitioner, but as someone who can just talk to you about existential questions, I guess. Yeah, and so the Canadian military having a humanist chaplain is an example of this on a big institutional scale. But one thing that the guide seeks to address is for people who aren't religious, who are looking for maybe someone even just to talk to about that end of life process, where can they go? That's tricky. And I think that's what our our guide seeks to talk about and seeks to create and uh, create a network of people who want to talk about these things, want to share. You know, there are some really fantastic experts featured in our guide who really talk about creating communities of people who want to discuss these things. Because a lot of the time that people put off advanced care planning, which we talk about a lot here, is because there is a taboo. Death is so taboo. So going to someone and saying, hey, I, you know, I want to talk about my mortality. I want to talk about the way that, you know, I can see my end of life going. That can be very difficult for a lot of people. And in history, people might have that conversation with a religious, with a religious leader. 
Now that someone who doesn't identify with that religious leader, where do they go? Where do they go if they're not in the military? And that's exactly your question. And our answer is we build those networks together and we create positive communities and healthy communities and healthy relationships where people can turn to talk about these things. So Megan talks a lot in our guide about creating a community that has similar beliefs and different beliefs where people share knowledge. And that can be done through ritual, that can be done through ceremony, but creating a healthy network of people who want to talk about these things and are willing to be vulnerable with each other to talk about these things. So that might look like someone going online and you know watching TED Talks or reading this guide. That also might look like someone going to a death cafe you know, these <laughs> kinds of uh, places of discussion, places of meeting of minds. Um, it might look like a lot of different things. And like Ian mentioned, it is so personal. That's a personal journey that someone goes on. And we wanted to create this guide with a, a big list of resources at the end to answer that question. Where can I go from here? And we're One really proud of that list of resources as well. Just to add on to that, one other thing that I'll mention is the idea of a death doula or the end of life doula. This is kind of a new profession that is emerging. I think most people will have come across birth doulas or think of doulas in the concept of childbirth, where you have someone who's there, not necessarily as a midwife or as a nurse, but as someone who is a support person who's not, you know, your immediate partner necessarily or a family member, but who can help guide through that very challenging process. A death doula does the same, but at end of life. So it helps you and helps the individuals around you navigate these difficult conversations, sometimes for a fee because it is a profession, but, you know, they have experience navigating these for those who, you know, it can be very tough to start these conversations. And those are helpful options that are out there these days. You're listening to People First Radio. I'm Joe Pugh, and I'm speaking with Ian Bushfield and Sophie Burke. They're co-authors of a new free guide around end of life for humanists and non-religious people. Funeral director Krista Ovenall contributed and, and wrote that there are really no life events that we go into with as little preparation for as we do death. And she talked about that the professionalization of death over the last you know several decades has had an impact on us. I'm wondering if you can just reflect on that idea for me. You've talked a little bit, Sophie, about the taboo around death. If I can jump in, I mean, I'd, I'd almost bring it back to what I was thinking around or saying around, you know, the emergence of death doulas and that as we've seen society secularize and people move away from calling on their religious uh, facilitators or the religious representatives to handle these conversations, there's been a, a gap, a void in how to approach this. And not to make this political or anything, but capitalism will find a way to fill a market need, right? And so we see the emergence of these kind of individuals and professions to fill that gap. And this isn't to disparage these people. These, these are often great people, you know, Megan and Krista, who are quoted in our guide, who gave submissions are fantastic, uh, brilliant people. And the people who get into this kind of work I don't think do it for the money because I don't think it's that lucrative, but they are people who genuinely are compassionate and care. And so there is this growing, you know, network of 
options out there for people to help navigate end of life. And what we're hoping with the BC Human Association is that we can continue these conversations in ways that also provide something that's not always as formalized as like those relationships you might have with someone you have to sign a check over to. I know in a number of other countries like the UK and Norway, and especially the Scandinavian countries, the humanist communities there are quite large and have networks of experts and professionals and just communities to help uh, replace what traditional religious groups often provided. You also in the guide talk about health inequality and medical assistance in dying. What's the maybe the humanist perspective that you're trying to bring in the guide on on that issue? Well, I think when we talk about health inequities in relationship to MAID, the very big issue that we see here is firstly, what healthcare facility are you in and what are their religious beliefs or what are the religious beliefs of their board of directors? which is a very, very frustrating thing for a lot of people to know that their healthcare in one institution will be vastly different from another institution based on what those beliefs of an institution are. Now, that is not in alignment with Canadian values and you know rights and freedoms of Canadians to be able to receive proper healthcare access. But unfortunately, it is happening that people are receiving, you know, a, unfair access to treatment being in a Catholic hospital versus being in uh, a non-Catholic hospital. We also see these issues relating to uh, remote communities. You know, I'm very fortunate to know a medical assistance and dying provider who was asked to uh, come to a, a remote community to provide a, a medical assisted death one evening, and he wasn't able to get a, a ferry there. And the family eventually said that we are so desperate. She is in so much pain. This this needs to happen. She she just wants this as her dying wish. And they chartered a helicopter for him to come all the way to that remote community. Now that is way outside of the the means of the majority of people. And you should not have to charter a helicopter to get a doctor to your home, just to be able to have your right to medically assisted death. And that is deeply unfair and something that we are working on and advocating for people of all communities, of all backgrounds have access to this wish if they want to have a medically assisted death. Yeah, I mean, the question of health inequity touches on so many things. I echo everything Sophie has to say around access to medical assistance in dying, but we also see health inequity challenges for end of life across the entire spectrum. Access to palliative care depends on way too many factors beyond simply do you need it, right? Um, there, our system has built into its core white supremacy. We've seen this in different reports that have found racism in our healthcare system. There's geographic, racial, financial disparities. And so making sure that everyone can both live a life of dignity and access a death of dignity is something we care deeply about. And it's this ongoing challenge that we need to at least be aware of and acknowledge, uh, but ideally also fight back against and push for a more equal health and death system. It was interesting reading in the guide, there was almost like a, a balance that we're hoping society can find, as you write, where on the one end, you know, we don't want people seeking made as an alternative to living in poverty, for example, 
but you also address that a disproportionate number of the people who are able to access MAID seem to be well off. How do you kind of navigate that balance from, you know, giving people advice on this topic in a guide? It's incredibly sensitive, right? And it's kind of this broader ongoing conversation in Canada today, and it's going to continue to go um, evolve over the coming years as MAID continues to be studied and looked at. I know there's talk of expanding it to include access for people with mental illness as a sole underlying condition next year. Uh, and that is all consistent with the Carter decision from 2015. I'm forgetting now a few years ago that, uh, you know, people with intolerable suffering have the right to choose to end that. And that's something we believe deeply as an organization, but we also recognize that to, you know, fully reflect on that, right. You also need to have the ability to live if you want to do that. What's really fascinating is we point out from some of the studies that have been done on places where they have assisted dying, like in Oregon and in Ontario, those who choose MAID do tend to be the most privileged in society. Uh, we're still lacking as much data as would be ideal in Canada, and they're going to start collecting that this year. So every year there's an updated report on medical assistance in dying, who's accessing it and those kind of questions. And we'll get more data next year that will be really valuable for these questions. But it's kind of, yeah, you're right. There is these tensions and these different angles to approach it. But for humanism, we value personal autonomy a lot as a worldview. This is People First Radio. I'm Joe Pugh, and my guests are Sophie Burke and Ian Bushfield. We're discussing a new free end-of-life guide they've co-authored. It's designed for humanists and non-religious people. And you also included a section on the toxic drug poisoning crisis and death and humanism. I'm, I'm wondering if you can tell me a bit about what you were hoping to convey to people in, in writing that. I can speak to this because, I mean, I so this is a section I really expanded. Our initial guide was a pamphlet, a shorter version that touched on a number of different aspects. And it was published during the early part of the COVID-19 pandemic. And so we had a section in there on death during COVID, on the challenges that raises. And as I was thinking, as we were thinking about rewriting this and expanding it to an ebook, I was realizing we're in the midst of so many overlapping crises that need to be addressed. So COVID is definitely one of the challenges where so many of us have come face to face with the fact that death is more prevalent than I think we wanted to acknowledge and uh, impacted so many people. You know, 50,000 people in Canada have lost their lives of COVID-19, and we don't talk about that very much anymore, even though they're still dying. The other crises we're facing in BC are the toxic drug overdose crisis and climate change. In, in terms of toxic drugs, 12,000 or more people have died from that six a day. You know, By the time your listeners will have heard this, uh, it will be more, which is tragic. And many of these people in particular are younger men, which is not the group that typically dies as much, right? When we think about conversations about death, we're usually thinking of people who are older, uh, after retirement and who've lived a full life, so to speak. But with the toxic drug crisis, one use of drugs could be your last. And that changes the rubric so much. And starting to think around that and conceptualize what that means. Uh, in terms of humanism, you know, we've talked in some of our other advocacy around 
how there needs to be a more compassionate and evidence-based approach to this. A lot of the push for uh, tackling this crisis from the province comes on, well, we just need more recovery beds, but what does that do if the first time you take drugs, you die, right? I think your listeners are probably well acquainted with that. And even beyond that, we also like to point out that a lot of the approaches we have to recovery are based on kind of these moralistic 12-step frameworks that just require you to admit to a higher power. But many people don't believe in that. And so we push back on that. And you know that didn't all make it into this guide because there's so much more we could say. But we do suggest people think about some of these challenges, learn about how they can at least help those in their community, check in on your neighbors, uh, learn how to use a naloxone kit and those kind of things. Uh, on the climate change side, there's more large existential questions that it raises. But at the very individualistic level, at very least, you could start to think about, you know, what kind of death do you want to have in terms of the, you know, the greenhouse gas impact even? And, you know, what kind of things should we be thinking about there? Do you want family flying in from all over the country? Um, they're, they're minor things, but for many people, they are very important. And in the guide, we also discuss options like aquamation and so-called green burials and options that are really gaining popularity right now, especially among people who are very concerned about the climate change impact of cremations and of various traditional forms. Just like Ian mentioned, climate change and the toxic drug crisis are uh, reaching so many different areas of our life and end of life is absolutely no exception to that. And based on some of your comments just there, Ian, it suggests that this end of life guide isn't meant for folks you you might have alluded to, we would conventionally have in our minds as being older or like at the conventional end of life stage, but is really something that anyone can can benefit from. Who is the who is the target audience for the end of life guide? Well, we describe it as a guide for humanists and non-religious people in BC, right? So people who are religious probably don't need it as much as people who aren't. But in for the most part, we want to see that more people are having these conversations. And the earlier you have these conversations and start thinking about these kind of questions, the better. Like, I'm not too old myself. I'm in my mid-30s. But I have a will and have a representation agreement. So some of that was prompted by having kids and having to actually think about some of this a little more, more actively. But they are the kind of things I think everyone should start thinking about and discussing. I also wanted to talk a bit about legacy projects, which are discussed in the guide. And just ask if you can give me some examples of, of what they are and what they can look like for, for people who aren't religious and you know what their impact is. I think legacy projects are a really exciting opportunity for people to find meaning closer to the end of their life and to reflect on their life. You know, um, our guide talks a little bit about uh, the senses and engaging the senses as part of our world and, in, you know, engaging with those to ground ourselves at end of life. And, you know, a legacy project can pick on pieces of that. That could involve sewing a quilt with people around you or everyone making a square and putting them all together that could involve, you know, taking old photos of things that you've been involved in organizations, projects, and reflecting and creating meaning on what you have worked on in your life. Just like Ian mentioned, being good without God, how are the ways that we've engaged in and brought up our community 
that are intrinsic, that are are done because we want to, not done because of a fear of an afterlife. So reflecting in our lives, creating that legacy and sharing that legacy with others, making sure that people know what we've done in our lives and what we're proud of and what we're leaving for the next generation is very, very important. So like you mentioned, that could be a quilt, that could be, you know, tons of different artistic projects, that could be uh, painting, that could be just writing a book or writing a few words to share with someone. Um, one of my favorites that I've heard of is just recording voice memos and asking that people play them after your passing, recording a voice memo for many different people in your life. I think that's a really beautiful and powerful thing to to hear someone's voice and hear them talk about their their love for you or or you know a, a way that they've left an impact uh, or they hope that they've left an impact on their community. Is there anything else either of you would like to bring to the conversation today? I don't think we've pointed out that the ebook is free. Uh, it's easily found on our website at vchumanist.ca. It's also available on uh, Kobo and Kindle, the Amazon store, Overdrive. Mostly, I think on Amazon, it's 99 cents, but you can go to our website and get a copy for free in PDF. We just really wanted to make this accessible. And, you know, we have some generous donors who help keep our organization uh, running, which is how we're able to do things like this. We also obviously always encourage more people to get involved, but uh, we're just really happy to put this out there and to be able to talk about it today. Sophie, any final thoughts for today's conversation? I think that I'm really excited that this word is getting out to people. My my wish is that people who are agnostic, people who are atheist, or people who just identify with humanism or are curious about it, understand and validate that this is a, a true way to consider and learn about the world. It's not just a lack of thought or a lack of uh, belief. It is, a, it is a true thing in your heart. It is a true feeling that is important and can make uh, the world a better place for those who want to. Ian and Sophie, thank you so much for taking the time to speak about it with me. Thank you, Joe. Thank you so much. Ian Bushfield and Sophie Burke are co-authors of a new end-of-life guide from the BC Humanist Association. People First Radio, People First Media, and People First Stories are community media projects of Vancouver Island Mental Health Society and are produced in Nanaimo, British Columbia. The opinions expressed do not necessarily represent the views of Vancouver Island Mental Health Society or its broadcast, podcast, and social media partners. 